I want to invite you to turn with me. We're going to go to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 22. And uh, while you're turning there, I need to remember to do this. We celebrated people graduating first steps last week. And uh, one is here today who was not able to be here last weekend. We want to celebrate him finishing first steps today. Uh, Carlos Montenegro graduated from Branch's first steps class, and we're so proud of him. We love him, and we're glad that he is part of Branch's church and excited about his future here and all that God is going to do in his life. Amen. If you don't, haven't got to know him yet very well, uh, you owe it to yourself to get to know him. Uh, he is just a kind, kind young man. And uh, it's kind of weird to say young man now that I'm older. But he's a kind young, young man. He's a man. He also has uh, a grass-cutting business. So if you don't like doing your yard work, you need to talk to him. That's who you need to talk to. And uh, we're thankful for him being here, being part of Branches Church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, again, turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. And... Uh, this morning, I want to preach to you about revival. I want to preach to you about a personal revival. I want to preach to you about church-wide revival. I want to preach to you about a revival of God working in this generation. This generation. A generation that has gone far from God. But God is working. God is doing something in this generation. He is doing something in this hour. I know we can get distracted, we look around at all of the things, all of the things, and we think, you know, God's far from here, there's so much division, dissension, um, but I'm telling you, in the middle of that, God is working, and if you find yourself getting caught up in that, I can tell you the key to getting out of it, and that's just simply to flip the switch on all the stuff you consume, whether it's social media, the news, 24-hour news, all of those points of access, because they have nothing good to tell you. They're not going to tell you what God is doing. They're going to tell you what the devil is doing. And so I want to preach today about revival. But first, we have to ask this question, what is meant when I use the word revival? What do I mean when I say revival? Well, the current definition of revival is the, the act or instance of reviving. So in a sense, something that was alive but is now dying needs reviving. And so that is the definition. But revival for us is to rekindle a flame that was nearly extinguished. To bring to life something that was almost dead. And in the course of living life, for our God, it is possible to allow some crucial things to slip away from us. And every one of us go through those seasons. I'm not saying that. If, you're, if you find yourself in a season where you're praying less than you have been in the past, I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to encourage you to fan the flame in your life. That's what revival is about. Revival is a time of restoration of things which have been lost. And how many of us can admit we've lived long enough to know what it is to lose some things? 
Can I just be honest with you today as a pastor? There are times where I go through seasons, I feel like I have lost some things with God, and I'm trying to stir those things back up in my life. We all have those seasons. It happens to us. But we don't just stay there. We find a place of revival, place of restoration. Look at someone close to you and admit to them, I need a revival. Look at somebody else close by and say, I need a restoration. That's what I want to preach on this morning, a time of restoration, a time of restoration. And I want to talk specifically about the cost of revival, the cost of revival. This idea that floats around uh, us that, that the things of God will not cost us anything, it's, it's a very deceptive thing. And I understand where people take it from. They take it from Scripture. You're right. You can't earn your salvation. You can't buy your salvation. There's nothing that you can do to get that. But there are things of God that if you're going to receive them, it's going to cost you something. Even salvation, it's going to cost you turning away from the world. There's no picture in Scripture of having both the world and Jesus and making it. That's just not the truth. So we're going to look at the story of Josiah. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 22, and it's also found in 2 Chronicles, but we're going to focus on 2 Kings 22 today. Now, he's going to serve as our example of what it is to be in a time of restoration, a time of revival. When Josiah was eight years old, he became the king of Judah. Now, Judah was... Uh, kingdom in Israel, as Israel split the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, he became the king of Judah. He sat on the throne in Jerusalem. And immediately, this young king, eight years old, he brought some change to the people and to the country. And this is notable. It's something that we should pay attention to because in a culture and society that had declined into evil and presented evil as normal, it was normative in his society to be involved in very evil things, Josiah, at the age of eight years old, he made a decision. Second Kings 22 and 2 says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. While everyone else was going to the right, to the left, they were being evil, they were being unrighteous, they were doing what made them happy and pleased them and that went against what God's law stated, this eight-year-old king decided he was going to do what was right. Now, this is the power of making a decision. And what a difference a decision makes. It was a wrong decision made by the people who spied on a promised land that brought a whole generation out to die in a wilderness because of a decision. Lucifer's decision to follow pride cast him out of a position that had him right next to God as the chief musician and worship leader in heaven. A decision. Jonah's first decision not to obey God put him in the belly of a whale. His second decision, however, delivered himself from the well and gave the city of Nineveh opportunity to repent and be delivered 
from judgment. What a difference a decision makes. And what a great God that we have that our first decision is not always our final decision. We have an opportunity to repent. We have opportunity to turn back to God. And listen, the decisions you make every day in your faith, they affect more than just you. The decision you're making to show up this morning, it might impact your children. The decision you're making right now may affect generations to go beyond you. And the prayers you pray right now and the decisions to pray those prayers, it may impact generation after generation. It may impact your city. What a difference a decision makes. Those decisions will have a lasting Impact, And we don't know who influenced Josiah. We don't know who it was that put in him that you should make the things of God first. Or how he came to know about the one true God in the middle of all of the idolatry that was going on around him. We, we don't know. We do know that he decided to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And Josiah's decision to seek God and rebuild the temple resulted in revival. Discovery of the book of the law was a result of that revival. And restoration of the glory of God to the nation of Judah was a result of that revival. 2 Kings 22 and 2, going back to that scripture, says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He did what was right. Or what we often say, he did righteousness. He was doing what was righteous. Now, righteousness is an abstract term, and it's difficult for us to define, and difficult for us to appreciate. Those of us who have been walking with God for some time, we have spent time in his word. We may understand righteousness as it pertains to God, but there are two verses in the Old Testament for those who may not know what righteousness is. There are two verses in the Old Testament which provide us insight into God's expectation for us when he speaks of righteousness. The first is found in Genesis 15 and 6. He believed the Lord. This is talking about Abraham. He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So we could say righteousness, first off, is believing the Lord. The second verse is Deuteronomy 6 and 25. It says, then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So a short kind of understanding of what righteousness is and what we're meant when we say that Josiah did what was right and he did what was righteous, it means that first he believed and then second he obeyed. It was belief and obedience. Too many people try to separate belief and obedience. Both are necessary in God's kingdom. They cannot be separated. Belief and obedience are woven together in the fabric of faith. So when a person declares that I am someone of faith, 
what they are really trying to say is that I believe God and that when God speaks, I'm obedient to God. I'm trusting in God with every fiber of my being and whatever he says, I'm going to obey. Now, that's a lot easier to say sometimes than to do. But if you are someone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, it means that you are pursuing to the best of your ability that you believe God and that you obey him. James dealt with this in James chapter 2 and verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Notice he's trying to, the person is trying to separate the two things, faith and obedience. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Because belief and obedience are woven together in the fabric of faith. And the revival that occurred during the reign of Josiah was a revival of righteousness. He believed the Lord. And because he believed the Lord, he obeyed the Lord. And in just the short chapter that we have of him, or chapters, if you include 2 Chronicles, the chapters that we have of him, at the age of 16, Josiah begins to seek the Lord. So notice it starts out, he starts reigning at eight years old. He starts hearing the things of God, pursuing God, and at 16, he begins to seek after God. It says in 2 Chronicles Second Chronicle 34 and 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father Abraham. So he comes to power at the age of eight. Eight years later, 16, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. Notice the progression in Josiah's life. First, he began to seek God. But then as he sought God, then he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. Seeking the Lord is always the first step of restoration. James 4 and 8 says this, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Seeking the Lord is always the first step in restoration. Seeking the Lord is always the first step of revival. But it doesn't stop there. Four years later, in his 12th year, Josiah begins to purge the land of false worship, idols, and idolatry. It all began with repentance. Repentance leads to the ongoing process of sanctification. Now, sanctification is not a word we use every day. We don't walk around telling people, hey, sanctify that. It's not what you do. But sanctification is the process of cleaning. It's getting stuff out of your life. And Josiah used what knowledge he had of what pleased and did not please God to remove the things he knew needed to be removed. Many people try to use the excuse, I, I don't know where to start. I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what I should do. 
you start with the things you know in your life that are not pleasing God. Start right there. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to know everything. And you don't have to get it perfectly right every time. Sadly, too many Christians today live to learn, with sin, live, learn to live with sin because they fail to put out of their lives the things they know are sin and displease God. And that's not the kind of Christian we want to be. We want to be a sanctified Christian. We want to be a Christian who is living the life that God has intended for us to live, to get every one of his blessings and his promises. But it starts in repentance and it starts with dealing with the things you know are in your life that should not be there. Because scripture never tells us that the Lord will wrestle sin from our lives. You won't find that in scripture. Actually, it says just the opposite. The Lord instructs us to put certain things out of our lives. Ephesians 4, through 24, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. What does that mean? God is not going to take you and clean you up. You have to submit to the process by purging your life. That's what revival is. That's bringing life to the spiritual man that maybe has been put off to the side for a little bit too long as you've enjoyed the pleasures of this world. But here's the thing I would really want to talk about today. The cost because restoration costs you. It costs you. This year, my wife and I, starting last year, and still going, still paying for, still doing the work, we decided we would spruce up our house. We're going to paint it. And then, because you're painting it, you're going to redo the landscape. And then because you've painted it and you've redone the landscape, you can't have the same old color of door handles. You've got to replace that. And then the outside looks so good, you've got to fix up some of the inside. Restoration costs you. Church has been blessed. We've, we've expanded into the new space. It looks great. We enjoy it, but it cost. There was an expense associated with doing that. Revival has a cost associated with it. Going all the way back to the start of restoration in repentance, it costs you something. Some things in your life have to die. The things you pursue in this world have to die. You have to let go of some things that they seemed really important to you at one time because of the cost associated with revival. We call it a sacrifice. The picture is drawn for us in 2 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 3. It came to pass in the eighth year of King Josiah 
the king sent Shaphan, the scribe. Verse 4 says, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Now, we don't know when in this process Josiah began to collect things to restore the temple. We don't know when he began to take a collection. But we do know that somewhere in that process, Josiah decided, you know, what we need to do is this, this house of the Lord that's over here, it's in disrepair. It's, it's not looking as glamorous as it had at one time. So we need to repair the house of the Lord. If we're really serious about the things of God, we need to make the temple a place that encapsulates the glory of the Lord. So by his 18th year leading, there was sufficient money in the treasury to begin the work. What was Josiah doing? Josiah was leading the people to revival and restoration. And an important point is that this revival and restoration required a surrender of their finances to God. They had to surrender some things to God. Matthew 6.21 tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So ask yourself, what do you treasure? What is it that you really treasure in this life? Because the work of God in your life, in your family, in your city, it costs a sacrifice. The work of God requires effort, as we're going to see. The temple did not restore itself. People had to be invested in what God was trying to do among the people. They sacrificed time, talents, and finances to the work of God. Verses 5 and 6 go on and tell us, let them deliver it to the hand. He's talking about the treasury. Let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. So during this great time of restoration, there's a sacrifice being made. They're sacrificing their time. They're sacrificing energies. They're sacrificing monies. All for restoration. All for revival. But it's important to notice that as they were going in and doing some things, verse 8 tells us that God rewarded them. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Notice where it was found. It was found in the house of the Lord. In the place that they had neglected. In the place they hadn't been going to for some time. In the place that they had to go in and clean out the cobwebs and remove some of the old junk that had stacked up and wasn't pertaining to the things of God in the place that had fallen into disrepair. As they did the work, as they invested, as they sacrificed, God revealed more of himself to them. Did you catch that? As they made the investment, as they gave, as they sacrificed in the middle of that revival, in the middle of that restoration, 
God revealed more of himself to them. And they found the key to a sustained revival. It may have started with cleaning some things up. It may have started with making a collection and preparing timber and stones and all of the things to make it look nice. But in the middle of that process, God gave them his law, his word that promised the blessings that they should see in their life. It promised all of the things that if you do this, I will do this. And they begin to have the opportunity to have a sustained revival Kyle was holding in his hands the thing that could direct Judah and keeping them from sinning against God. He held the thing that would direct their path. He was holding in his hands a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. It should strike you that there were two types of treasure. There was the treasure of the earth being given. But there was the treasure of heaven being returned. Treasure in the hands of the caretakers of the temple. And while the doorkeepers brought in money and workers brought in stones and timber for repairs, their sacrifices, Hilkiah was bringing out something far more valuable. You'll never regret what you put into the kingdom and work of God. Is when you understand what's coming back is something far greater than what you've given. You can never regret that. And this word and the word that they had, it had an impact. Verse 11 tells us, Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes so Shaphan reads the word, and immediately the king says, we, we haven't been doing enough. Haven't been doing everything that we're supposed to do. He received revelation. He started to understand what really pleased God and what, how far they had really gone away from God. And listen, when you spend time in the word of God, you should always have some conviction that gets stirred into your life. You should have conviction. Conviction is the thing that causes us to respond positively to the word of God if we allow it. Josiah recognizes how far they've been led from the things of God. And so he tells them in verse 13, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah wants to know, he needs to know, what more do we need to do? What else can we do? But because of that pursuit of God, because of the restoration, because of the revival that's happening in Josiah's heart and is happening in the people, verse 19 says this. It's a message from the Lord. Because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes, wept before me. I also have heard you. 
says, Josiah responded to the Lord and to the word of the Lord. The Lord heard Josiah. Josiah restored the covenant with God. He restored the Passover feast. He restored and removed sin from the people and from their worship and from the temple. And he continued in the process of sanctification. But it only happens if you follow God's process. Notice where it started. It started with a young boy, heart for God, saying, I don't know everything that I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to do what I do know that God is pleased with. And then it start, he moves from there and begins to purge and clean the temple and the tabernacle. He says, all right, we're, we're cleaning this out now. Let's get ready for the restoration that's going to happen. We have to make preparation for restoration. We have to make preparation for the revival God's going to bring us. And they start to sacrifice, and they start to give, and they start to give of their time and their talents, and they start to do all of the things for the house of God. And it's in the middle of that God gives them direction for what else they need to do. I'm talking to someone today that, Maybe you've been wondering, what direction am I supposed to go? Maybe God's waiting on you to get in a place of sacrifice, a place of giving, a place of surrender, a place of turning to God and purging some things from your life, and he's going to give you exactly what you want and desire in direction from his word. But you have to put yourself in a place of restoration revival you have to move into a time where God can work through sanctification you see it's not enough to just be a Christian we must seek truth we must fall in love with that truth and we must walk in truth but restoration is going to cost you Here's the thing about restoration. It's worth every sacrifice. It's worth every sacrifice. I was in high school, and I'm going to be ending quickly. I was in high school. One of my friends, two of my friends, their dad was into car restorations. It was something they did together as a family. So when I turned 16 and I bought an Oldsmobile Alero, which is, uh, you know, a terrible car. If you don't know that, they don't even make them anymore. I don't even think they make Oldsmobiles anymore. I bought an Alero, and I bought an Alero for $1,200. Man, I miss those days. You can't even touch a car for $1,200 now. I'm sounding like my grandpa. My two friends, they didn't have a car when we turned 16. Instead, what they had is they had one year of work. Their dad took them in the garage, and each one of them had a car that they were working with him on. And as the money came in, they would do the work of restoration. And I can remember that year as a junior in high school, when they pulled up in their cars. I'm telling you, it was 
amazing. One of them had a 1964 Galaxy, Ford Galaxy. Beautiful green paint job. It was fully restored. He had crushed velour seats on the interior. It was a, it was a car. The other one had a 1963 Impala, Chevy Impala, and it was sparkled purple on the side, and on the top was white, and inside was crushed velour seats. And every time that we said, hey, you want to go hang out Friday, Saturday? Yeah, we can go hang out. Whose car do we want to take? We ain't taking my car. Let's take your car. But that restoration cost them. The whole year I had driving the Oldsmobile Alero, and I got to enjoy. I went to work, and I got to go on dates, and I got to do all of these things. They were back at the garage. There were weekends where I'd say, y'all want to hang out? And they'd say, man, we're working with our dad. Because it cost them something. But what they had in the end was way better than the time they had invested. It was way better than the money they had invested. When they went to college, they sold those cars, and those, college, those cars helped pay for their college. When I sold my car, I got less than I paid for it. They got way more than what they put into it. Because restoration, it will cost you. It's going to cost you. But the thing you get in return is going to be so much more valuable. If you'll stand with me. I'm speaking to people today. God's trying to restore some things, revive some things in your life. And he's calling you to sacrifice. He's calling you to make the investment for yourself. He's calling you to do some things. And you might be wrestling with what it's going to cost me. What is this going to cost? What's the impact on my life? Because let's just admit it. North America, we're, we're selfish. We're selfish. What is this going to do for me? God's asking you to make moves to sacrifice. Because you're in a time of restoration, a time of revival. And whenever you move, whenever you invest, when you do those things, God's going to reward you with something so much greater, of so much more value that you're going to look back and maybe, maybe somebody will ask you the question one day, was it worth it? And you'll say, yeah, yeah, it was worth it. it yeah, it was very much worth it. Do you regret doing it? No, no, I don't regret that one minute. How can I regret giving that up when I've received this? That's the kind of God that we have. Every head bowed and every eye closed with me, we're going to pray. Lord, you see, you see your people here. You see who's watching online. Faithful, good people, heart toward you. God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would give us the strength and courage to sacrifice for you and for your kingdom and for what you want to do in our lives. 
God, I pray that you'd help us to be cheerful givers, people who look forward to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, people that look for restoration and revival and seasons in our lives where you're trying to restore something to us. God, I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ that your spirit would confirm the word that I'm preaching today. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Still praying, still seeking the Lord. I wonder if you would just be honest. If you're a person here right now and you, you desperately want God to restore some things in your life, why don't you just slip your hand up toward the Lord? God, I want some things restored in my life. Everyone in the building, why don't you lift your hands toward heaven, begin to worship the Lord. God, we need you today. We need you today. We need you today. God, I pray right now, Lord, that every one of those hungry people that lifted their hand, God, that you begin to work right now in Jesus' name. God, demonstrate your spirit working in their life, God. Call them toward their sacrifice. Call them toward purging the things in their life that need to be removed. In Jesus' name, I pray that you'd speak to them. Give them revelation right now. In Jesus' name, we give you glory and honor for it, God. Amen, amen, amen. Church family, why don't you come, pray pray before the Lord. Give the Lord an opportunity to speak. If you're a guest here, We usually take a little time at the altar service and the end of service to give God an opportunity to speak to us. We come together and pray. We invite you to come with us. We're going to seek the Lord. We're going to give him an opportunity to speak to us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, amen. Lord, move on your people. Ah, move on your people. Speak 